Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day, this day of resurrection, this day on which our Savior rose from the dead, conquered death and hell. Uh, Father, would you give us a greater insight into you, your word, and our glorious salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, we are wrapping up today with Westminster Confession, chapter 27, of the sacraments. And we noted that there have kind of been three different viewpoints uh, as to what is happening in the Lord's Supper. One is the Roman Catholic viewpoint, which is that by taking the bread, by drinking the wine, you are taking grace into yourself. That you're, you're taking the body of Christ, and, and grace is being offered in the elements, uh, or it is, it is being uh, transmitted uh, in the elements. The other is what we call the Zwinglian view. Uh, it's a memorialist view, which says that this is purely a reminder. Uh, there, there is nothing magical or special. Magical is the wrong word, but, but, but they would say magical. Uh, there, there's nothing special that is going on. It might as well be Ritz crackers and Coca-Cola, uh, as long as it's something that reminds you of the body of Christ broken for you, the, the blood of Christ shed for you, then that is entirely what is going on uh, in the Lord's Supper. It's recalling to our mind. And the confession uh, and, and classical Reformed theology um, notes that there is a connection between the sacrament, the sign, and the thing signified. Uh, that connection is so strong that sometimes Scripture refers to the thing signified. Sorry. It, sometimes Scripture refers to the sign in order to make the point of the thing signified. And so we saw last week in Acts uh, where you are to be baptized and wash away your sins. There, there's such a close connection between baptism and the washing away of sins that the apostles use one to refer to the other. Uh, in the same way, uh, when Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, this is, my, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sin, there's, there's a close connection between the sign and the thing signified. Now, we want to avoid saying with the Roman Catholics and with Luther that the sign is the signification. Uh, you need to make... So, so look, an, an example, um, if you're driving down the highway and you see a sign that says Washington, D.C. City Limits... In one sense, you could say, yeah, that sign is where I cross over into Washington, D.C. So you could make the connection between the sign, Washington, D.C., and the limits of the city. 
but simply the sign isn't Washington, D.C. There's a connection between the two, yes. And it's more than simply, hey, you know, it makes me think of Washington, D.C. There's a connection between the sign and the thing signified, but they're not identical to one another. You can't grab hold of the sign and say, see, I'm in D.C. now. You've got to go to D.C. to be in D.C. So the confession is trying to very carefully mediate between those two positions and stick with the words of Scripture. So moving on, in section 4, this gets to, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church says there are seven sacraments. And again, the word sacrament is a Latin term that refers to a military oath. And so we do take oaths in worship. Uh, we've already looked at the, at the section on lawful oaths and vows. They are an ordinary means of worship or a, a part of worship. You take, for example, your membership vows. Uh, that is properly done in the context of a worship service. Your, your marriage vows. Uh, these are properly done in the church before God and witnesses. Uh, I don't think it's a worship service. That's a side matter. Uh, but there, there is an appropriate place for oaths and vows in the worship of God. But oaths and vows despite the fact that sacramentum means taking a military vow, there's a distinction between these two. And that's what Rome flattens out. So these appropriate things, such as membership vows, in Rome become sacraments. Uh, and and so the, the vows of marriage become one of the sacraments because it's appropriate to take that vow. Westminster and, and the Reformed uh, theologians in particular want to stick very, very closely to what Scripture says, and you simply don't have. I mean, uh, the, the idea of a marriage, the idea of a wedding ceremony, uh, the, the bride walking down the aisle, the father giving the bride away, uh, the, all of the things that you do in a, quote-unquote, Western wedding ceremony, all of these things have scriptural reasoning behind them. Uh, it, it's not just something that we pulled out of thin air. Uh, there, there's, there's thought that, that's gone into this. So, you know, you've got the bridegroom who's standing there, the bride is approaching, it's, it's a symbol of the bride coming to, the, the church coming to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Uh, you've got the, the vows that take place uh, within. But if you're going to go to Scripture and you're going to say, what are the essential elements of a wedding service in Scripture, you're not going to see the bride must walk down the aisle, there must be this music playing, the minister must say these words, uh, there, there's not a, a scriptural mandate for exactly how we are to do weddings. And so different cultures do weddings in different ways. Uh, you've got some cultures that uh, 
You know, you, you shatter the glass and you jump over the broomstick or whatever. Uh, you, you've got different ways of performing a, a wedding ceremony, all of which are legitimate, as long as this man and this woman are being united, they're making vows together to, to remain faithful to one another, uh, because we clearly get that from Scripture. Uh, marriage is to be until death do we part. And Jesus says, Moses gave you reasons for divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Uh, it's sin that brings about the, the breakup of the marriage relationship. So my point in getting to all that is, if we're going to say that something is a sacrament, if we're going to say that something is set apart, then we ought to see in Scripture very clear direction for how this thing that is set apart is to be performed. Uh, and we just don't see that with marriage. We don't see it, for instance, with ordination. Uh, holy orders is is one of the vows uh, that the Roman Catholic Church takes as a sacrament. Uh, you just don't see that. The closest you get to ordination is when Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift that was placed in you by the laying on of hands. And so when you see an ordination service, you will see uh, the elders laying hands on the person that's being ordained. And that comes out of uh, that, that passage in Timothy. Uh, where there's the connection uh, between the laying on of hands and the call to the ministry. My, my point is, in these other things, you don't see a clear statement in Scripture. You do in two areas. And that's what chapter 4, or section 4, picks up. There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. So both baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments that we have very clear direction in Scripture on. Uh, salvation and the profession of faith is always connected to baptism. Uh, that is very, very clear, uh, particularly in the, in the Acts, uh, but it's very clear this is connected, uh, and we should be seeing this every time that someone makes a profession of faith. And the second is the Lord's Supper, and again, that's a very clear Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper uh, on the night in which he was betrayed. Paul uh, references it in 1 Corinthians 11 and said, as often uh, as you do this, when you come together, uh, that you are to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, in a, in a way which is not exacerbating the divisions that are in the church. Interestingly, that's about all we've got regarding the Lord's Supper. It's to be bread and it's to be wine. That's pretty much all we've got. And so the churches, historically, uh, there's a wide range of, of how we participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, and we'll get into that. The Confession has an entire chapter uh, on the Lord's Supper. And so, so we'll develop that a little bit more. But you'll see 
different churches sell, and, and within the same denomination. So there's not a Presbyterian uh, thing to do. Sometimes there's a common table. Uh, sometimes the elders pass the elements. Uh, sometimes there's a verbal fencing. Sometimes uh, the elders want to meet with visitors ahead of the service. Uh, historically, uh, when you were going on vacation, you would go to your session and you would say, hey, I'm going to be out of town. Uh, could you please give me a communion token? And they would hand you a communion token. And so that if you visit a church uh, in Myrtle Beach, uh, you go to Myrtle Beach Presbyterian Church and you walk in and they're having the Lord's Supper, you show them your communion token and they know that you are a member in good standing of a Presbyterian church and you can uh, partake of the Lord's Supper. So, so there's a whole wide range of, of the details of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, and, you know, obviously the difference between the Scottish practice, which is uh, either annual or semi-annual, uh, and all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is weekly. Uh, the, 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 the timing, the, the element, or the, the circumstances around the center thing, uh, there's a lot of freedom on. But the core, the core is there are these two sacraments that are very clearly given to us in Scripture. And I think if you will just, you know, consider the other sacraments that the Roman Catholic Church has, uh, marriage, uh, you don't see that kind of detail given in Scripture. Uh, for how you are to perform a wedding ceremony. You don't see that kind of detail given in Scripture for how you're to perform an ordination service. Uh, you do see detail uh, in terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's including uh, even the different modes uh, of, of sprinkling, immersion, pouring. Uh, it, it includes various understandings of the proper mode of baptism, but everybody's on the same page that baptism uh, is an essential element of the worship of God. Now, in order to understand, uh, let's see, let's look at uh, section 5. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were, for substance, the same with those of the new. And this is where Reformed theology, uh, the Reformed church, kind of stakes out its independent position. And that is, and, and we'll get into this more when we look at baptism. In what way is baptism associated with circumcision? Uh, in what way is the Lord's Supper associated with the Passover? And, and we'll get into that in coming chapters. But the, the point that the confession wants you to be aware of is before Adam and Eve fell, let's see if your reformed hats are on, what covenant was mankind under? What is the covenant? It's the covenant of works. <clears throat> and a covenant like an HOA 
It's just an agreement. That's all the word means. It's a solemn agreement. It's usually uh, connected to blood. Uh, and so generally, uh, in the scripture, you'll hear the word to cut a covenant. Uh, and, and so the, the idea is that either person who breaks this treaty, their life is forfeit. So it's a very solemn uh, type of HOA agreement. <laughs> uh, but, but it's uh, basically just an agreement between two parties. And the agreement between the two parties in the garden is what? What's God's command to Adam and Eve? To be perfect. That's that's what God's side of the covenant is. And Adam and Eve's side of the covenant is to do what? It's to obey perfectly. <laughs> That's their side. If God holds up his side, Adam and Eve hold up their side. If Adam and Eve hold up their side, God holds up his side. And so that's the covenant. That's the agreement. You be perfect, and on the day that you're not perfect, I'm going to kill you. Uh, In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, Be perfect. (laughs) And as long as Adam and Eve are perfect, then they have every right to look at God and say, we should be in communion with you. Be you holy as I am holy. Uh, the, the command of God is always holiness. And when he gives the instruction to Adam and Eve, his instruction to them is obedience, perfect obedience. Uh, and if it's not perfect obedience, then it's death. Well, the the eating of the fruit was the sign of their obedience or disobedience. I understand that, but when you read Genesis, you don't see the word perfect. He's going to be holy, not holy, but he never said it. Well, so the, the language that we use is perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. Uh, Adam and Eve are called to obey, and, and they're to obey God's command. He doesn't give them any explanations. He doesn't give any qualifications. He just says obey. Well, any disobedience brings death. To disobey that command. I mean, that's the whole nature of sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And so any time that we step over that line, we receive death. The death penalty. Okay, so after, sorry, go ahead. So after Adam and Eve fall, they they transgress God's law, and God has every right to cut them down immediately. 
the human race could have been annihilated right then and there, and God would have been completely just uh, in, in doing so. However, he did not. And why did he not? He, he saw the bride that was going to be purchased for his son. At the end of the day, what we say, what, what I think is accurate from Scripture, is in terms of why didn't God immediately kill Adam and Eve? He would have been completely justified in doing so. The reason that he didn't was grace. And, and so we no longer are bound in terms of being reconciled to God. We are not going to be reconciled to God through our perfect personal and perpetual obedience. Yeah, that's a great question. Why is it grace and not mercy? Uh, mercy would be not killing. So, grace is more than simply the staying of the punishment. Grace is stooping down to bring the healing. Uh, and, and so, one of the... Uh, classical definitions of the word grace is it is demerited favor. Uh, not only do you not merit it, 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 you don't merit God's favor, you actually merit God's wrath. And so my merit <laughs> in terms of grace is a demerit. The same as when you're in high school and Believe me, I know all about demerits. Uh, <laughs> I think I may still have a record <laughs> with my old high school. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that, that's a that's a great point, and you're starting to get into. So let me let me reiterate the point for people who didn't hear it. In Revelation, Jesus Christ is pictured as slain from the foundation of the earth. Is uh, uh, John turns, he hears the vo- he sees the voice, and it is the voice of the Lamb uh, slain from the foundation of the earth. And and so uh, we're we're getting into yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism and <laughs> the order of the divine decrees and, and all of those things. Uh, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Right. So, so one of the benefits of pointing out or, or making the point that you just made, which is that Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth? And I believe Paul uses that language also in the, in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1 uh, uses that, that same kind of language. Um, that 
erases the problem. And, and so, uh, here is the problem, <laughs> uh, that certainly the Protestant church has wrestled with. The problem is this. You've got the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all taking place around A.D. 33. So clearly, you've got a whole bunch of people from Adam on who lived prior to the crucifixion. And then you've got a bunch of people ever since down to the year 2022 who have lived after the crucifixion. So... Was there a point in time in which Jesus Christ of Nazareth was not crucified? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. see, it's not an easy question. It's not a straightforward answer. Uh, yes, because we're linear. And so... In a temporal sense, yes. I mean, there was, whatever, January 1 of AD 32, Jesus Christ was ministering, he was walking around, he was healing the sick. Uh, and January 1 of AD 34, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, and so something happens in between January of 32 and January of 34, uh, which is called the crucifixion. And that's when Jesus Christ is physically nailed to a tree, physically put in a tomb, physically raised from the dead, physically ascends into heaven. But, how is it that I'm made right with God? By that. <laughs> right. By that. And so, that's why I think the writers, particularly of the New Testament, bring in that language of slain from the foundation of the earth to point out the fact that everybody from Adam onward were saved by the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and so they're, they're looking forward to that sacrifice. They don't see it perfectly. They don't understand perfectly, uh, you know, what the Messiah is going to be. Is he the son of David? Is he going to come and bring this, this physical kingdom? That's what a lot of folks were looking for. They didn't understand the suffering servant. Uh, who is the suffering servant? Uh, classical Jewish, uh, understanding is that that is Israel. And there's something meritorious in Jewish suffering. Uh, and, and later Christ says, no, this is me. <laughs> I am the servant, uh, of Jehovah. I am the true Israel. And, and so all of that language is very confusing, but it's still the same object. 
because Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. Um, so let me just make this point because we're, we're running over again and this will close up and we'll get into baptism and the Lord's Supper. The point that, that we want to be uh, fixed with is there are only two ways of being reconciled to God. Only two. One is you can be reconciled by what you do. You can be perfect. Or you can be reconciled by what someone else does. Someone else is perfect for you. And that's true of any religion. Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, any religion that has ever been invented, Buddhism, all of it, everything, Hinduism, everything. (laughs) You are either made right with God by what you do, or you're made right with God by what someone else does. And there's only one of all the worldly religions, of all the religions that mankind has ever invented, there is only one that says, I'm made right with God by what someone else does. And that's Christianity. So, particularly you young people, when you start saying, well, how do I know all the other religions are false? You know, I need to, I've only been taught Christianity. I need to explore and figure out whether Christianity is really different from Islam. Fine, do it. Run, run all the way there if you want to. But understand, here's the bottom line. This is reality. You are made right with God by what you do. Or you're made right with God by what someone else does. And study every religion you want. You will not find another religion that says you are made right with God by what someone else has done. And that, being made right with God by what someone else has done, is what we call grace. I'm being made right with God because of the work of someone else that is applied to me. And so the point that I'm wanting to leave you with, uh, and again, we'll pick this up in, in coming weeks, Lord willing, as we look at baptism, as we look at the Lord's Supper. But the point that I'm wanting to leave you with is there's be, be very careful of drawing a big uh, uh, contrast between the Old Testament and the New. These are two different books. They are, they are very different in many ways. But the way of salvation has always been the grace of God in Jesus Christ. His atoning work. He's the lamb slain. He's the one that the sacrifices were pointing forward to. There was nothing meritorious about slicing the throat of an ox. Uh, God didn't say, oh, cool, I got me another dead ox. I guess I'll let you go to heaven. Uh, there, there's nothing magical or meritorious about anything of the sacrificial system. It's only as it points forward to a perfect sacrifice. And there's a recognition that there must be blood. There must be death. Death is the result of sin. And I have to be made right with God by another's death instead of me. And so that is what the sacrificial system is all about. And that's why we draw these two basic, uh, basic, uh, sacraments of the Old Testament and the New. 
How are you brought into the community of God? And how are you maintained in the community of God? One is circumcision and Passover. And Passover is to be celebrated regularly. And when your children ask you, what do these things mean? You point back to redemption. Uh, the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched hand. You, you teach your children about God's redeeming power. Uh, and in the New Testament, when your children ask you, what do these things mean? You say, Jesus Christ brought me out of the land of death and sin by a mighty and outstretched hand. Uh, that exodus uh, out of darkness and sin and slavery that you and I celebrate when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So there are only two covenants, and the covenant of works, covenant of grace. If you get that, then you'll understand uh, how we can... We, we avoid a lot of bad stuff uh, if, if we look at the Scriptures in that light. Uh, one of the things that we avoid, uh, I realize I'm running over, but, but one of the things that we avoid is there is a movement amongst evangelical Christians that has been around since roughly D.L. Moody in the late 1880s, uh, which teaches that there was, were different times in which God offered salvation to different people. And so you've got the time of uh, conscience, of human conscience, when we were supposed to follow our own conscience. You've got the time of the patriarchs, uh, when the patriarchs are the ones who are supposed to show us uh, what is righteousness. And then you've got the season of the law, this period in which you and I are called to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be made right with God. And the problem is that that really... Uh, it, it it gets into dangerous territory. Uh, I've, I've grown up in that context. I know the vast majority of folks who hold to that are true brothers and sisters in, in the Lord. I'm not calling out any heretics. I'm just saying, when you start to pull these two things apart, you get into trouble real quick. Uh, and And I think that's where... Reformed theology in our confession is uh, excellent in in terms of saying, listen, there's only only two ways of salvation. You're either saved by what you do or you're saved by what God does. And being saved by what God does is called grace. Uh, And so you got the covenant of works, you got the covenant of grace, and and these elements, these these, uh, seals, these signs and seals of the covenant of grace, we should expect to be connected to one another in the old and in the new. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, we've got, we've got common grace and we've got saving grace. <laughs> uh, but, but yes, uh, so, so yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, the only, the only point I'm wanting to make is that from Adam to me, everybody's been saved by grace. Everybody who has been saved has been saved by grace. Uh, and so our sacraments, uh, should reflect that.
Okay, let me close in prayer, and then let's uh, go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you for this grace uh, that we live in, in which we move and have our being. That's the very oxygen uh, that we need. Lord, use that grace uh, to, to flame us, to, to whip up our passion for Christ, for holiness, for our love for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.